0: Welcome to the Medici Podcast, episode 49, Duke. If you enjoy the podcast, feel free to support us by subscribing to the Medici podcast on Patreon. You'll get bonus episodes and ad-free versions of episodes from the main show, or you can just tell the history lover in your life about the podcast. And with that, let's get on with the show. Last time we said goodbye to Clement VII, but I want to talk a little bit more about the impact he had on the papacy for better or for worse, since we're wrapping up the Holy Family season. Like I mentioned last time, we shouldn't blame him for too much. No matter what he did or didn't do, it's almost certain no matter what, the papacy would have gone from being a fairly major Italian power with the ability to interfere in broader European politics to an institution with mostly spiritual and moral authority. The papal states were created when European feudalism was in its childhood, and it seems inevitable that as feudal political structures gave way to the modern nation-state, the papacy would struggle to adapt and change too. It definitely didn't help that over the years. more popes would follow the example of Sixtus IV and Alexander VI and keep pruning off papal territories to create independent fiefdoms for their relatives. But no pope would ever again be able to corral enough political and military power to resist foreign influence over Italy, perhaps even more tellingly, as determined as even the powerful Emperor Charles V was to be crowned by a pope. After him, no Holy Roman Emperor would ever again bother with the whole charade. Only Napoleon Bonaparte would feel the need to be crowned by a pope. In that time, he dragged the Pope all the way to Paris, rather than go to Rome. The reign of Clement VII was the end of another era, that of the Renaissance papacy. Again, we shouldn't exaggerate too much. After Clement, there would be Popes who were great patrons of philosophy, the arts, and the sciences. And likewise, even at the height of the Renaissance, there were humanist intellectuals subjected to censorship like Pico della Mirandola, Unfortunately, it's rather hard to take a nuanced view since the history of the Catholic Church has been really caught up in today's political debates and culture wars. Depending on your politics, you might see the Catholic Church as a misunderstood and maligned institution that actually promoted the sciences. Or you take the view that the Catholic Church was a force purely for oppression and ignorance. Hopefully there's no need to explain that the actual history is more complicated, as we'll see when we get to Galileo when the Medici duke who supported him. And Clement himself showed a concern for the rights of the conversos, recent Muslim and Jewish converts to Christianity in Spain and Portugal, who were still discriminated against. He even issued a papal bull in their defense. But nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that Clement's reign and its failures marked a turning point. Under the thumb of the ultra-Catholic Charles V, and facing the crisis of the Protestant Reformation, the papacy became a less open institution that would arguably confront the great intellectual movements of the future, the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, with more hostility and suspicion than it did humanism. Likewise, in the decades after Clement's papacy, there would be more papal bulls limiting the freedoms of Jews in the papal states, most notoriously of all establishing the ghetto of Rome where Jews would be required to live in an overpopulated slum subjected to regular flooding from the Tiber River. The popes would also expand on the papacy's earlier condemnations of certain books, establishing a thorough, formal system of censorship with the Index of Forbidden Books. But also as a side note, I should mention that there were actually two more far less famous Medici popes, Pius IV and Leo XI. However, they were both only distantly related to the people we think of as the Medici and neither had really much of an impact on papal or Italian history. In fact, Leo XI would only live 26 days after his election. But back to the subject at hand. Whatever one makes of Clement's impact on the papacy, one thing is obvious. The Medici dynasty itself was entering a new era. Perhaps one even Lorenzo de Magnificent didn't envision The family of one-time bankers had entered the ranks of European royalty. We've met him before, but let's take time to get to know the first Medici to rule Florence on an actual throne. Alessandro de' Medici was born on July 22nd, 1510, when the Medici were still exiled from Florence. Alessandro's parentage is actually something of a mystery. One that unfortunately hasn't left too many clues. Neither his contemporaries nor modern historians can agree on who Alessandro's father was. On paper, his father was Lorenzo the Younger, which would also make him Catherine de' Medici's half brother. This was certainly what most of his contemporaries believed. However, even at the time, some suspect that his actual biological father was no one other than Giulio de' Medici, Pope Clement VII himself. Many modern historians, including Alessandro's biographer, Catherine Fletcher, take it for granted that Alessandro was actually Clement's son. But honestly, there isn't enough proof one way or the other, and barring some miraculous discovery in the archives, We'll never know for absolutely sure. But if Alessandro was Clement's son, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that the family would spread a white lie about Alessandro's true parentage. Someone like Rodrigo Borgia may openly acknowledge his illegitimate children, but that was still scandalous for anyone in the upper echelons of the church. There's even some questions surrounding the identity of Alessandro's mother. What evidence we do have suggests that his mother was Simonetta de Collevecchio, who was either a servant or a slave. Italian administrative documents at the time tended to use the same term for both, so it's impossible to know for sure what she was. Either way, she worked in the household of Alfonsino Orsini, the wife of Piero the Unfortunate. Eventually, she was released from service and given enough money to buy some land near Rome, apparently just in time for her lands to get looted during the imperial invasion of the Papal States. During this time, she married and had at least two other children. There is a letter dated to 1528 or 1529 in which she pleads with her son for financial support, in which she pleads with her son for financial support, Although this letter was not included in the original archival collection of Alessandro's papers, and only appeared in the 19th century, since the letter is now lost and cannot be verified, it isn't unreasonable to assume it might have been a fake. And it has been proposed that Alessandro's mother might have been someone else entirely. Regardless, the other bits of proof do suggest Simonetta was Alessandro's mother, and the sketch of her life I just shared may be accurate. Even so, nothing is straightforward about Alessandro's birth, and there probably are many details that were deliberately forgotten. The one detail about Simonetta that fascinates historians is that she herself, or at least one of her parents, may have been black Africans. Catherine Fletcher certainly thinks it's more than possible, While slaves were relatively rare in Renaissance Italy, and slaves from West Africa more so, Naples' ties to Spain and its involvement in the Atlantic slave trade did mean there were a large number of black slaves there. Simonetta could very well have been one such slave, or the daughter of a freed slave. Yet again, though, we have to rely on speculation. Certainly, though, paintings of Alessandro from his own lifetime are at least suggestive on the topic of his race. The question of Alessandro's race is not just a matter of curiosity. Obviously, the fact that there may have been a political leader in Renaissance Italy who was a black man says a great deal about the history of racial attitudes at the time. Now, the history of race in the West is a Massive topic that I'm definitely not going to try to tame here. And there is still a lot of ongoing debate about race and racism in history and how they led into modern racial concepts. But I will say I do think it's telling that one of the reasons we do have to rely on Alessandro's portraits to investigate the question of his skin color is that his contemporaries didn't find it worth discussing at length aside from the fact that during his lifetime, he was nicknamed the Moor. There are suggestions that his appearance was commented on, but as far as we can tell, there was no suggestion that he shouldn't have been allowed to hold any kind of important office, much less be the ruler of Florence, because of his appearance. This isn't to say that Alessandro was never attacked or mocked for his appearance. He certainly was. Rather, the ideas surrounding race in the modern Western world weren't at least entirely in place yet. The concept behind modern racism, namely that certain groups based on their ancestry are inferior or superior to others, and such groups can be easily identified from their physical characteristics, was mostly, if not entirely, unknown. Instead, the dominant notion about race at the time was basically that differences between peoples came from geographical and cultural circumstances, instead of inborn traits. At the time, people thought more in terms of differences, and there wasn't really an idea of a superior race. The Mamluks, the Islamic Empire, literally run by slave soldiers who rose through the ranks, preferred to recruit their soldiers from slaves taken from the Black Sea region of Circassia, simply because the men from there were supposed to be exceptionally attractive and good warriors. Another case that I think illustrates how intellectuals and people in power thought about race in that era was when King James I of England and Six of Scotland objected in the letter to John Rolfe marrying Pocahontas. It wasn't for the reasons we might expect today, or that James was a John Smith stan. Instead, James's concern was that it was inappropriate for a commoner like John Rolfe to marry Pocahontas. He was, after all, the daughter of a king. But I should also mention historians have argued that modern racism was beginning to take shape in Spain, where people with Jewish and Muslim ancestry were forbidden from migrating to the colonies based on their ancestry alone. In the Spanish and Portuguese colonies themselves, such laws would eventually give rise to a strict and complex caste system that discriminated against people with indigenous or black ancestry. Even so, the environment Alessandro grew up in was one where his appearance likely drew ridicule, but not what we'd consider today complete marginalization. That Alessandro's birth was the subject of a family cover-up seems to have been something Alessandro himself knew. When several people mocked him for his lowly birth, Alessandro was said to have quipped that he wished they would tell him what they knew about the circumstances of his birth, since they clearly knew more about the subject than even he did. While I definitely do believe discussion of Alessandro's race has historical value, at the same time I think such discussions overshadow the human tragedy of Alessandro's life, that he was separated from his mother. Possibly as soon as he was born, and she was left behind to live in poverty. At first, Alessandro was raised for a life in the church. In fact, if Alessandro's alleged father, Lorenzo the Younger, and his great uncle, Giuliano, had lived and produced more legitimate heirs, Alessandro would have almost certainly ended up like Pope Clement or Cosimo de' Medici's own illegitimate son, Carlo given a position as a member of the clergy. But after the the Younger and Giuliano's deaths, the only legitimate descendant of Cosimo left, who wasn't already part of the church hierarchy, was a girl, the future Queen Catherine. This left Alessandro and Giuliano's own illegitimate son, Ippolito, as the last hope for the senior line of the Medici family. So, under Pope Leo X, at an early age, Alessandro was legitimized. In the future, Pope Clement purchased a noble title for him from the Kingdom of Naples, the Duke of Penne. Alessandro and Apolito both grew into extremely well-educated, good-looking, and athletic young men. They also developed into the sort of people we might call frat boys today with Alessandro particularly enjoying shouting insulting things at passerby from his horse. If you've ever walked or jogged near a college campus, you might be having a flashback right now. Except with a car instead of a horse. Anyway, Alessandro was especially talented at hunting and jousting, while also having a famously sharp wit. Ippolito was considered exceptionally well-mannered, but he also developed a reputation for being unreliable and hot-headed. During negotiations and the imperial coronation at Bologna, Ippolito and his friends got into a street fight with some Spanish men, causing three deaths. Incidents like that might have been why Clement made a fateful decision that historians still debate over today. On January of 1529, Clement VII took to his bed with a fever so severe his doctors thought he might die. Previously, he had made plans for Ippolito to marry a daughter of the Gonzagas, the ruling family of Mantua. But on what he thought would be his deathbed, Clement dramatically changed course, since he couldn't risk losing the Medici foothold on the church especially while they were still exiled like, from Florence, he made Apollito a cardinal. Possibly it was purely because Alessandro might have been Clement's son. But there are hints that things like the gang fight in Bologna made Clement bet on Alessandro for a political career outside the church instead of Apolito. backing this is a letter from a Venetian ambassador, reading, It seems to me that his holiness is more content with Alessandro's cleverness and manners than those of the cardinal. Unfortunately, with his usual lack of flair for diplomacy, Pope Clement unwittingly planted the seeds for an intense rivalry between the two cousins, which would one day prove to be fatal. After the siege of Florence, when Alessandro was made duke as we covered last time, he took to the role with a genuine Medici flair. Like some of his ancestors, he was an obsessive collector of art and an avid patron. His favorite artist was Giorgio Vasari, whose book, The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, has been used as a source for this very podcast. For Alessandro, Vasari painted The entombment Men of Christ, and decorated a room in the Palazzo Medici with scenes from the life of Julius Caesar, which would turn out to be an ironic choice of subject. Alessandro became somewhat notorious for outbidding and outmaneuvering other art collectors. For example, he and his agents were able to snag Baccio Bandinelli's reproduction of the ancient statue, Laocoon and his sons, away from no one less than King Francois, France. When it came to the actual business of government, Alessandro held regular audiences at the Palazzo Medici, where even the city's poor and laborers were encouraged to come to him with their petitions and complaints. Alessandro would also stop by shops and guild offices unannounced to discuss any concerns and problems. Perhaps, to his credit, Alessandro never forgot that he was the son of a slave or servant, and that shaped his approach to ruling. If Alessandro was popular among the Popolo Minuto, and several surviving street ballads suggest he was, he was absolutely despised by the city's ruling class, Automati. While much of the anti-Republican steps Alessandro took seemed to have been the result of pressure from Emperor Charles V, rather than stemming from his own ideas, he was resented for the construction of the imposing Bazo Fortress, and the transformation of the one-time government building, the Palazzo della Signoria, into a ducal residence, the Palazzo Vecchio, the old fortress. Even more importantly, Alessandro remembered who was responsible for the last expulsion of the Medici. The Ottomati were appointed to few high-ranking government positions. Instead, the spoils were handed out to men from other regions of Italy, who were completely dependent on the Duke's goodwill. This, more than anything else, seems to have inspired the whispers that Alessandro was a tyrant. As much of a sincere populist as he might have been, Alessandro was paranoid, although in a way that calls to mind the saying, it's not really paranoia if they're out to get you. No doubt Alessandro had grown up with stories of the Pazzi conspiracy that claimed the life of his maybe-grandfather. After his death, it was found that Alessandro had numerous suits of padded armor and chainmail that he would wear under his clothing. One time, two men in a Tuscan village were arrested for wishing the Medici line would just get wiped out. It was idle chatter, but the two men were still beheaded. Of course, as you might remember from earlier episodes, even when Florence was more of a bona fide republic, free speech was never a norm. Still, the brutality of their punishment and the fact that they were just average people from a rural village seemed to justify what the most disgruntled of the Ottomati were saying about Duke Alessandro. At the same time, there was a change in the air. The disaster of the Siege of Florence, the return of the Medici bringing into the wars, and the fact that the last true republic quickly turned into a busybody authoritarian regime had thoroughly discredited the anti-Medici cause. The Florentine coinage ditched the old Republican symbols, like the lily in the image of John the Baptist, the city's saint, and replaced him with the head of Alessandro on one side and the Medici family saints Damian and Cosmos on the other. This shift even manifested in fashion. Florentine upper-class men began growing their beards out instead of being clean-shaven like old Roman patricians, and they started dressing in the colorful, ostentatious clothing of French and Spanish nobles. While Jacopo de Portono's portrait of Duke Alessandro shows him dressed like a Florentine patriarch, he was more commonly painted in armor, showing off his noble status. Fully behind Alessandro's regime was Emperor Charles V. Pope Clement had arranged for the betrothal of Alessandro to Margaret, the daughter of Charles and his Dutch mistress, Joanna Maria van der Geinst. Of course, given the morals of the time, Charles V had no problem with Alessandro's reputation for seducing women. Nor was he apparently bothered by the fact that Alessandro had an upper-class mistress, Tadea Malaspina, who gave birth to two of Alessandro's children, Giulio in 1533 and Giulia in 1535. By the way, I consider the fact that Alessandro named both of his children after Pope Clement to be a compelling, if inconclusive, bit of evidence that Clement was his father after In fact, Charles seemed to personally like Alessandro, and the two hunted together on several occasions when Charles happened to be in Tuscany. Meanwhile, Ippolito still none too secretly harbored dreams of replacing Alessandro as duke, or at least the head of a new Florentine republic. He begged Clement to release him from his vows and allow him to enter secular life. No doubt Ippolito was inspired by the example of Cesare Borgia, who was allowed to give up his life as cardinal and went on to become a formidable prince in his own right. Clement refused, however. Instead, he berated Apolito for how much money he wasted. Apparently, he was fascinated by the athletic prowess of other peoples and spent lavishly collecting like objects Tartar archers, Ethiopian wrestlers, and Indian swimmers and divers and also surrounded himself with Turkish bodyguards. To quote Catherine Fletcher, It is hard to escape the impression that this was something of a human zoo to entertain Ippolito and his friends. Certainly, such an expensive hobby did not cause Clement to develop much confidence in his cousin. Instead, in the spring of 1532, Clement sent Ippolito to serve as papal legate, to Charles V while he was on campaign against the Turks in Hungary. It seems to have been a way to get Ippolito out of the way more than anything. As bad as Clement was at taming Ippolito's ambitions, his death made things worse. He had served as a check, keeping Ippolito from moving openly against Alessandro. But now the gloves were off. And the knives were now out. Thank you for listening, and buona